Hey guys, welcome to Thrive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu, and thank you so much for listening on. You could have been anywhere in the world and you decided to spend just a few moments of your precious time and we greatly appreciate it. Here on the podcast, we talk about three things, living a plant-powered lifestyle and enhancing emotional resilience and creating a thriving mindset. And I interview a range of passionate guests such as physicians, dietitians, coaches, entrepreneurs, and many more. And please join me as I deliver these engaging, informative, and high-valued conversations for you. And just remember the first five seasons of the Thrive Bites podcast can now be found in the new The Chef Doc app, available in your Apple Store and Google Play Stores. So what are you waiting for? Come on inside. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Thrive Buys Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu, and um, I have such a wonderful episode for you guys today. I'll be interviewing um, Holly Johnston. She is many, many, many different different things, uh, but she is, you know, mainly the creator and director of Responsive Body, which is a biodynamic ecology of support for your body, for body-based resiliency, social connection, personal and professional development. We go into topics of understanding what your physical body can do, is capable of doing, what it's been through. She shares her story about where she comes from, her upbringing, you know, the different ways of how she has fought through different types of learning systems and to be able to birth and create what ha- what she has created. And honestly, um, it's been one of my, I love all my conversations for, with all my guests, but it's probably one of my favorite, easily one of my favorite conversations. So you de- definitely don't want to miss this. And, you know, if you want to learn more, please pay attention to the show notes to find out more about what she offers. But we will get to the episode and I'll see you inside. Okay, guys. Well, welcome to another episode of Thrive Buys Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu. And thank you so much for being here with us. You could have been anywhere in the world and you decided to spend just a few precious moments with us. And we are greatly appreciative of that. My next guest for this episode, I am super, super, super thrilled to have my guest, Holly Johnston. Uh, She is a creator and director of Responsive Body. Uh, It is a biodynamic ecology of support for body-based resiliency, social connection, personal and professional development. She is an award-winning performer, choreographer, and she was the artistic director and choreographer for the national touring dance company, Ledges and Bones. And she is a descendant of artists, um, artists and social justice workers. Her identity was formed through the love of her fam- uh, family's uh, matriarch, a white, queer, single parent of three adopted children, social worker, fierce defender of human rights who <laughs> love cats more than people. <laughs> and she has experienced the benefits and deterrence of acquiring her Bachelor of Arts in Dance um, and as well as a Master of Fine Arts in Choreography. And she has synthesized her study of biodynamic craniosacral therapy, structural integration, barefoot shiatsu, connective tissue uh, mobilization, functional movement, kinesiology, anatomy and physiology, polyvagal theory, art therapy, epigenetics, yoga, energy medicine, and choreography into her work. Wow. That's uh, (laughs) – I had to like (laughs) – in order to – so we can spend all episode just naming our entire resume, but I want to go deeper. So uh, please let me introduce you to Holly. Say hi, Holly. (laughs) Hello. So good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your energy, your expertise. I am thrilled to get into this conversation. Number one, how are you doing? And share with the audience where you're calling from. Uh, I am doing well. I'm holding myself together uh, at uh, the edges with joy um, and with resiliency, with a uh, challenge uh, and purpose. Uh, right now, I'm in uh, the Long Beach area, seated inside my house in the garage office body work room that houses yeah a lot of the places where I think and create and imagine and draft. Um, so that's where I am today. 
That's so cool. That's so cool. It's always um, the concept of having your own place and having a place of Zen or having just like a a focus space, you know, to really dive deep into your work um, is as beautiful as a concept. It's a lot harder to apply because there's so many different iterations like, oh, this is not right. And this is not right. Or, you know, you go to other studios or other places of work and then you kind of cherry pick, you know, so do you feel like your current, uh, you know, spot is really um, grounding for you to be able to birth, you know, your creative projects? Yeah. I mean, I feel like for the layers of sort of interior processing, it's a super functional space in terms of being able to actualize some of the full range of what I wish I could do with people and my own self. (laughs) um, certainly wish I had more space. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I would have to live in just maybe a a palace in order to have enough functional space to do the things I actually really wish I could do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I uh, used to live in, you know, Los Angeles, you know, myself and the space is definitely, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very high demand, you know, type of, uh, you know, a thing that we all acquire or wanting to need. So I'm super excited to dive deeper um, into your story. And, you know, I call, you know, this my super heroine origin story, you know, type of question of how you arrive from how you got from point A to point B. So for you, I'm super interested. And I'm hoping that I phrase this correctly in terms of the best way to kind of start off the conversation. And that's, you know, how did you arrive? Because you have so many, you've acquired and amassed so many different types of um, expertise and experiences. How did you arrive to just the concept of body-based learning, if that's the best way to uh, start off the conversation? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And gosh, I mean, I think the origin of it um, is out of necessity, really, right, is I feel like uh, from early childhood, being born in another country, being adopted, and having really early, early trauma, really early trauma, that when I came to the United States at four and a half with my sister, that it really, yeah, the translation of coming both out of trauma freeze and living in a world I couldn't comprehend just made me rely on my body. I couldn't comprehend anything else. Nothing else was really sensical. Words didn't make sense. Safety had already been betrayed. So the only cues I really could comprehend were body to body. They were the ones that were the clearest. They're the ones that gave me the strongest cues to comprehend actually what was happening. So I think really at a young age, I already just had to. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I was doing it. And then because of the early trauma, learning in school was really uneven. There were certain skills I had immediate access to, other skills that were much, much harder, mm-hmm. which made no sense to many people. Didn't make sense to me either. But because I'm a fighter, I somehow just had to figure it out. And so my body did all of these creative ways to start figuring stuff out. So I kind of, yeah, kept using my body to fight through the educational system that didn't understand why I had to move all the time or why Mm. I couldn't, like with a certain form of dyslexia, I, I couldn't hear or read unless I could feel what you were saying. So Mm. restricting my body was just like, "Ah!" so learning actually how to maneuver inside the school system. Uh, Cause again, I said, I'm a fighter and I have a big ego and I like to do well. (laughs) I was like, not going to be like bad at something. So the, fighter in me yeah just kept adapting and kept adapting and then because I had a space with my mom to be this person yeah I could keep kind of engineering and re-engineering how to get through all of the things I needed to get through in terms of the standardized learning Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, school system had its challenges. Yeah. And reading and writing were always, yeah, a a part of that challenge. And then when I went to college and majored in dance, that's where I encountered somatics as a field for the first Mm. time. And the deep sort of just like practice of like, you can just feel your insides. There's a whole practice where you just feel what's moving on the inside. Stop it. I want in on that. (laughs) Oh, wait. wait. Yeah. So that as a part of the dance training to learn how to perceive sensation and then, yeah, how to be moving through it and with it. That started to give me more stuff to tinker with. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, the stuff I was doing in early childhood is a form of this. It my body found a way to organize connecting thinking. And moving, because moving is doing this other thing in my brain at the same time. It's like, oh, wait, there's so many organizational capacities that are starting to happen Mm -hmm. because I was moving, organizing my body system, engineering all of this really coherent, yeah, just sensation. And it helped with my brain. It helped move emotion. It helped move all these things that I thought I couldn't do before. Next thing I knew, language, vocabulary, reading, writing, so many things just started to come online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after college, the more I taught, the more I saw actually speaking of and with and through, again, so much of what you're doing, mm-hmm. that holism that really includes the context of who you are, how you're feeling, all of those things. That was so supportive of all the learning Mm. without actually bringing that fundamental holism, that integrative approach with students. Mm -hmm. There was like stress that they just, some part of them, especially with movement, just couldn't fully be accessed. Mm. So when certain conditions were just there, reduce all that stress, (laughs) they could move a mountain, Mm. pull them out of the rafters. They felt fearless. They could do anything. Mm. Yeah. So, so much of the teaching laboratory, understanding fundamentally hmm, that nervous system, Mm. Mm, getting the conditions where body feels safe, priming those things, and then adding task, repetition, you know, some analysis and question more curiosity. I saw much stronger outcomes. Mm. Yeah. So it just really reinforced over and over and over again that by offering integrative approach that really includes all of the human, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all of the human, including the interior of how it feels to be them in the moment. Yeah. That coherence. Shoot. Learning's recreational. Shoot, it's fun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as an educator, it was really helpful to understand that you can't decontextualize body from body where it's at, how it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, uh, fundamentally was the grounding for, yeah, just affirming mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Man, so many, I have so many questions. Taking a step back, you know, you were adopted and you made that transition with you and your sister. And you had mentioned that you had, you were given the space. So are you referring to, you know, your parent, you know, giving you that space? And if so, what were the examples that kind of laid the bricks for that foundation that, you know, that you mentioned for yourself? Yeah, and it was definitely as a part of the family structure, it was definitely came from view my mom had of the world and what, yeah, she thought developmentally gave the most potential to the child. So the idea of having enough space meant that I could make a lot of mistakes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that that was, didn't mean I got in trouble. I didn't get in trouble often, but I did make a ton of mistakes. (laughs) 
So not having that linked, mm-hmm. not being afraid. To That's is huge. Huge. It's huge. Because I, I, I just imagine different types of family structure and the positive, negative reinforcement, the neglect, the abuse that one would receive growing up and having your synergistic combination that laid the found, uh, the foundation for yourself. It, it's just, it just sounds huge, you know, for you to be able to arrive, you know, to this point. My other question, and, you know, forgive my ignorance because I have no professional formal dance uh, background. You had mentioned somatics as part of the college education and how that was a huge light bulb for yourself. Is that typical to receive within a, uh, I guess, a formal like dance uh, type of study in, in a curriculum? Or at that time, was it ahead of its time to be able to ha- receive a class like that when you were studying? I think it's both. And I think that given the school I went to with Loyola Marymount, that the inclusion of somatics at the time when I was going to school in uh, the early 90s um, was incredibly progressive. Mm -hmm. I think the approach to dance, not just as an art form, but as an anthropology for being human was really, really huge. And so the practice of somatics and being able to understand that part of dance and dancing, I think was really progressive. I think that what's unifying and has always been coherent throughout dance and dancing and teaching dance is that fundamental understanding of the phenomenon that you can perceive something deeply on the interior and that when you are doing that and that is deeply connected and coherent with a sense of yourself, the world, others, that there's something artful in what you're crafting, that something healthy comes alive, enlivening, Mm. something dynamic. So I think that there is something there that a dance education is fundamentally always tried to enhance and highlight as a part of why we're dancing. Why was responsive body created? This is your, you know, your your baby, your creation. Um, <laughs> why why was this why was this uh, you know created? And what alongside with that, what did you or what do you continue to hope to achieve with it? Responsive body was really kind of created again uh, in response to the fact that I felt no longer really comfortable inside higher ed. I didn't quite know where to be there in the system of formal American education in general. So I just felt like I needed just another space to kind of do the questioning to work differently. So the space of more independence just came from needing to not do something that I was just like, yeah, just didn't want to partake in. I just wasn't convinced about the colonial approach, white Mm -hmm. supremacy, male supremacy, the domination of all of those features. I just needed to be not in it for a while. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where that just real, just need to create a canyon. And I sort of in that kind of understanding is moved from working as a choreographer for kinesthetics the sort of shaping of movement or action, the fashioning or treatment of it as art making to being interested a little bit more in like, okay, before that happens, what actually is happening deeper than that? Like what is in our nervous system? What makes us capable of connecting or disconnecting? What are even, yeah, the features of being human? So just like, I don't know, got more curious about the biological aspects of body and the anthropological behavior or choreography of how being socially connected impacts how we develop as a, yeah, person. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. responsive body became another kind of place where I could just start asking those questions about what's in our nervous system, what's happening cellularly, what are we doing? How do we actually grow new options in our brain? Like, how Mm -hmm. does that happen? I don't know. 
how does even asking that question, working in a collective community, how does that allow for us to even engage in, I don't know, well-being mm-hmm. and the healing that is a part of the process in well-being? And so a lot of responsive body carries healing processes because fundamentally we need that. Yeah. Right. We just need a process to heal in order to be well, as well as systems to maintain our wellness and to enhance them. So responsive body sort of came at desire, I think, to be able to offer kind of a full spectrum or a full ecology of all of those layers of yeah, how to offer support in the healing process, how to offer support in the creative process that as you feel healthy and well, what it is it that we're generatively sort of offering? And then in that, what are some of the practices and skills that like enhance that and juice that up so that it really adds more and more potency? Yeah. So responsive body is kind of looking at like where yeah, those things happening in the programs that we offer. Sound, yeah, it's it sounds, um, it's beautiful the way you described it. And to me, it's almost like having a, in a way, you know, more of like a structure um, to be able to offer tools and to educate oneself that that relationship you have with your physical body is a continued process. You had mentioned healing processes, right? You know, being an osteopathic physician, I was really amazed that I was able to find this branch of medicine, you know, that has a fundamental understanding that mind, body, spirit are connected. And having come from, you know, my upbringing uh, of my mother who practices traditional Chinese medicine, you know, I'm well aware of different kinds of healing modalities and different perspectives of how to look, not just outwardly, but also looking, you know, inwardly as well. So what you have said, you know, for me resonates, you know, a lot. I do want to touch on a point you had mentioned earlier is that you said that you felt like um, you needed to steer out of the higher ed education where it emphasized more, you know, of the concepts and, you know, bigger concepts of white supremacy and capitalism, which you also mentioned in, you know, on your website as well. Can you share an example of that, that, uh, that, you know, listeners can understand who may not have a, you know, dance background? Yeah. I mean, like many of our intellectual fields, the curriculum and the intellectualism, the standardizing of that is often generated by men. It's taken a long time to even out and balance out that contribution. Um, So there's already in the just academy, a lot of male dominated information. So that just gets hard to like constantly sift through when you're trying to survive and contribute and displace a history of male dominated intellectual thought. So that just is like a heavy lift to be in the place where so much of that is happening. As we know, intellectualism is often seen, particularly as in education, yeah, white. And it's as much as, again, we have a lot of change, it's still steeping itself in some of that as just a reference being. The capitalistic part of it is that um, we are forcing people to go into an enormous amount of debt that they can Mm -hmm nearly never recover, particularly in the arts, Mm -hmm. in the humanities, which is painful um, to ask people to keep reinforcing that artists should be impoverished, Mm -hmm. that the contribution of that is so low scale that even trying to go to school up your game is going to put you in debt even more. So that paradox feels like yeah, it's like I, negating I, each, each other yeah i'm like what is i i can't do you know what i mean like that's too much dissonance at one time um <laughs> or for a long time depending on how yeah, long you've exactly, been like, <laughs> yeah so that feels nutty and um yeah so i think that there's a lot in those systems 
that are oppressive because of the standardization. So one of the examples without naming a particular place is I once worked at a university and I was teaching as a part-timer just coming in to teach a class. And I'd been teaching class the entire semester, doing my thing, working with the students, just being like, yes, you are badass. We are doing it, right? Like, yes. And then on the last day of finals, when we have to do grading, all of us in a panel comes in of other faculty. Okay. But they've they've never been in class with me before. I was like, that's interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like we're having guests. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a show. She's like walked in, walked in uninvited. No, they I had no idea they were coming. They walked in, they set up a table, they put down chairs, they sat behind this table, yeah. sat in their chairs. I was like, this is interesting. Oh dear. Okay, what's happening here? We've definitely set up a situation where now it's like, oh, I get what's happening. You're going to evaluate them. Oh, that's crazy. You haven't been here at all. Mm -hmm. Not one other day other than today. And you're going to participate in evaluating them. And this is finals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For my class, for a class I teach. So I'm like, you feel that hierarchical tension there? This is a class I teach. And you're just going to come in and assume you can participate in something that evaluates these students, which is only been witnessed by us as a group. This is highly problematic. Mm-hmm. And then the rubric that was offered as, yeah, the, the justification for some of this grading that they offered, I found deeply offensive. Mm-hmm. I found any discussion of a dancer's body size relative to a grade, incredibly offensive. So this is certainly before the time at which Yayu couldn't do these things, but that's an example mm-hmm. of things that, that at that time it was incredibly overt in the like early 2000s, but it's an example of the things that are still being done at a subtle level. Mm-hmm. We just give them sometimes different names, but it's still, yeah, I think attributes of the those kinds of systems are still in play. I think they're getting better, but that's an example of what I think can be done. I think an individual artist or professor contributing thought can get hijacked by their institution. Mm. I think that's problematic. I think there can be arbitrary standards that get applied that are completely irrelevant to the actual content of the work and what's being done. I think that's problematic. I think that there's still a bunch of, yeah, biases that are coming into play when we're evaluating growth and learning. Mm. And I think they're just, yes, they're trying to get better, but I think it's still, yeah, in, inside the, the system. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. Hey guys, this is Dr. Colin Zhu, aka The Chef Doc. I just want to take a few moments of your time to talk to you about something. Something that I feel needs to give reflection and pause for. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me, I've been on the self-work journey for a decade now. And I remember in my personal experiences uh, through my doctor's journeys and also from traveling the world, I was always searching for the next step or thinking that happiness was a destination. However, it's not. What I found instead was that life was a process. And learning about life was also a process and a practice. And that the state of happiness and the state of joy and contentment was also a practice. For those of you who don't know, since I don't share that much on my podcast, is that I actually battle with anxiety, OCD, and in the past, episodes of depression. However, little by little, step by step, after seeking extra help, I've been able to achieve monumental things in my life that I've been eternally grateful for. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp is a sponsor of this podcast. It's not a crisis line. 
It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. A couple of reviews. This is by Rebecca Raymer. Becky has literally saved my life by truly understanding me. She has given me self-talk strategies and different thought pattern exercises that have made me stronger and a more aware person. I am so, so grateful to have found her. I've been to so many different therapists and none have helped me like Becky has. This is another review for Adam Johnson. I've had counselors before, both on BetterHelp and in person through work. And Adam, by far, is the best counselor I've ever talked with. I feel like he actually listens to and what is going on. He asks questions to help you navigate your thoughts. And you can tell that he is listening and wants you to help you. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash the chef doc. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1.4 million people taking charge of their mental state with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Thrive Bite listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash the chef doc. T-H-E-C-H-E-F-D-O-C. Thank you for listening, guys, and back to the episode. Hey, guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's reassuring that you said that, you know, it is getting better, but it's not, doesn't sound like a hundred percent. And when you were saying that, that makes me think of the term uh, microaggression, you know, just Mm -hmm. like really subtle, almost in a way like passive aggressiveness, but through the form of, you know, in your field, you know, and that's, um, you know, that's interesting. Um, so in terms of responsive body and the fact that you, you know, kind of diverged or detoured away from this and, you know, how has that, you know, on your site, you said you are honoring legacies of oppression slash trauma. And then we had talked about, you know, the white supremacy and capitalism of this. So how does responsive body, um, if I may like answer this or seek to, uh, be a different um, offering uh, in mm-hmm. response in, in response to this. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, yeah, when I was sitting with this, I was just thinking about like maybe offering also to just the a language reframe, and that is that I think one of the things I'm hoping to do in the work, or yeah, aiming to do, is to really honor and dignify legacies of resilience and resistance that are coming from the lived experience of oppression and trauma, but to really highlight that that's really what responsive body is really wanting to do is resilience and resistance. Mm. How are these transformative for a person and a people's and to address again, the features of the conditional world that keeps asking too much of bodies to be resilient and resistant and to find the regulating balance between these two things. Yes, let us celebrate that we can be resilient and push and fight. Let us work equally as hard to create conditions where we ask less of that because the conditions are there and proper for us to be easy, joyful, kind, that sometimes life could be simple, fake, that. I think maybe it's that co-regulation between let's respond to the like, let's go get them, let's fight hard. Let's look at how can we be courageous and fight, fight, fight. And where are we building a world where we don't have to fight? Mm, 
That's beautiful. Yeah. Because I, you know, I think about my own upbringing, you know, being a first generation immigrant child, my parents came over in the early 80s, hearing about, you know, obviously not witnessing, but hearing about through their storytelling, especially of my mother's of, you know, she had to live through the cultural revolution, which is, you know, pretty much like the equivalent of, you know, you know, genocide, you know, for her history and all the different things, all the challenges. And then fast forward to a more recent event, you know, AKA March of 2020. And then you go through this wave of, you know, Asian hate, you know, is probably the the, the top of the mind example that I can use. And yeah, it's just this constant, you know, fighting and needing to be a certain person or do a certain thing. And what you are saying is, you know, why cannot we just live in a state of joy and being able to verbalize, express, move our bodies just in a way, just kind of exists and manifests in our own authentic manner. Mm-hmm. And not have, you know, all these different layers of conditioning, <laughs> layers of, you know, you know, you have to do this or, you know, it's just, just break free of that and just be, you know, you. It's almost like a lifetime of practice to kind of get to that, you know, and, and because of our short lifespan and because of, you know, we don't know when, you know, things could happen that time frame of being able to enjoy, if you even arrive to that point, that time frame of being able to enjoy yourself compared to what you had to kind of like dig out of is so short, you know? Mm-hmm. So I appreciate, you know, the fact that, you know, your, your services, your creation, you know, um, helps dancers and or dan- non-dancers alike to be able to kind of climb out of that, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think similar to what it is that you're offering and doing in, in your work and that it's that holism, that that brilliance that you were born with in your little beautiful toddler, beautiful little body. The thing that you did when you were four, all that moving, all that feeling, all that laughing, all of that is so healthy. All of it, because you were seen in the context of your whole life. Like, there you are. Like, oh, there is so much nurturing of the space that surrounded you as much as how you felt. And then somehow we lose that. Like, we just lose the equanimity between or equity between that which is surrounding us and what is in us. And it becomes incoherent. And that part I think is the thing that I get so get so curious about. We're so smart at how we raise little ones from zero to five. And then we just abandon all the things that we learned and we're doing. And then we send them to a space that looks a little bit like school jail It's like school jail, like none of the things that we did between zero and five, none of the colors, none of the shapes, none of the freedoms, none of the liberty, none of the nap time. And we're in a school jail. And then we're like, thrive, little ones, thrive. Figure it out. (laughs) I know. This is very stressful. Can you do something that maintains that? And so that's a little bit of the ideas of like responsive body as resourcing humans or when working with organizations or um, yeah, sort of the idea of businesses too, is what are you actually creating in your space that brings us back more to how bodies thrived and developed when they were kids? And that is, they didn't have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. You just responded. When you were hungry, you ate. When you were tired, you slept. When you needed to go outside, you went outside. How is there fairness in actually what resources us to be our bodies as well as the labor of what we're offering to an organization? And yeah, how are 
those things a part of how, yeah, things are contracted. I like that contracted. So if I were to give you a magic wand and a lot of the talk that we've had is off of the premises of the constructs of education, higher education, and seeing it with a very skeptical eye and then being able to say no and you know going off the beaten path to be able to get back to ourselves essentially if i give you a magic wand um and i said holly you know i give you a magic wand if you had to do this all over again or if you had a magic wand to say you know how would i rewrite this right and you had mentioned the timelines of 0 to 5 and then 5 plus something happened. <laughs> like it just doesn't continue. Right. So if you had a magic wand, what could you do differently? Almost to the point where what if we didn't, didn't need responsive body? What if, you know, responsive body, you know, naturally just kind of, you know, like how would you rewrite this if I gave you a magic wand? If I really had a magic wand, I would give us the capacity somehow to have amnesia. <laughs> That violence with no purpose, like, makes, like, wouldn't exist. Like, harm, like, wouldn't exist. So we wouldn't know how to do things that harm each other. Mm. It doesn't mean that things don't break or change or get destroyed. Change is essential. Life cycle is essential. But if I had this, I'd make us incapable of that degree of harm that gets to being violent and violent being that does that yeah that thing that breaks you at the existential point mm. at which it's possible to never again believe in love mm. so with this wand one of the things i would do is add that all the time we could be loving that in any consideration poof we could be loving and somehow that could just help us operate, make choices, mm-hmm. design spaces that are like, how does this lovingly help someone to learn? How is time kind in letting someone grow? How is my view on any of these things loving and not hurtful or harmful? So I think with that kind of imaginary thing, I would look at how we're designing learning systems. Mm. So they had that purpose, both to feel social belonging, connection to community, and a sense of liberation and getting to be wholly unique. Mm -hmm. And that somehow we would all be able to engage in the complexity of that choreography, like willingly wantingly that rather than simplifying and standardizing that we would be more capable of the complexity that maybe it takes or the creativity or the energy it takes to keep gardening the conditions Mm -hmm. so that those conditions give each of us the greatest potential to thrive. Mm. I love it. It can easily go (laughs) more than this hour. And I, I want to thank you for the work that you do. And, you know, this is a, such a beautiful conversation, much needed, you know, because a lot of it is through the, you know, your work is through the expression of the physical body. And sometimes you need, you know, to verbalize it in combination to, for some people, you know, we're just all wired differently to be able to understanding it in different layers, right? So I really, really appreciate the conversation. So we're going to close out. One of my favorite, you know, questions to ask of all my guests is, you know, your top three ways of thriving. So being a dancer, performer, choreographer, and, you know, you just give so much, you know, of yourself and serving, right? So my question to reframe it is what are some ways that you do for Holly? What are some ways that you do for yourself to continue that fire, you know, for you to get out from that, you know, from out of bed, you know, push on through the day, you know, like what, what is that, that you do on a continued basis for you Mm. to personally thrive? Mm. 
for me to personally thrive, let's see. I think one of the things, yeah, when I was with this question, I was thinking one of the things I think I do do is each day I think I try to find an attunement at some point at which the pacing and tempo of my internal sense of self is actually in rhythmic alignment with what's really happening around me. (laughs) So often I am stressed when this is moving too fast and my body is really behind it, or I am moving very fast and I feel like the world is moving too slow. (laughs) (laughs) Is somewhere I think either in the morning or somewhere, any opportunity, just that calibration of like, can I actually both feel how I'm moving? What's my tempo? And is that like congruently in alignment or at least in some saucy rhythm (laughs) with everything that's going on around me? And so I think that's one way I kind of attune myself to where am I today and how does that feel? And then when do I feel a groove and flow? And I think I'm sort of looking for a place in the day. Hopefully it's long. Sometimes maybe it's even all day, but just kind of feeling that pacing. And then I think um, another thing that I do is um, is to sense humor, not just to have a sense of humor, but to actually use everything around you, in you, to sense where things are absurdly, amazingly funny. that make you laugh there is so much around us that is ridiculous (laughs) where can you like antennas sense already delight absurdity Mm. the things that just tickle your joy so I think sort of sensing where humor is in any situation where, where can that be sort of sensed I feel like is a helpful thing as somebody who also works and sees and feels empathically Mm. so much hurt and pain Mm. simultaneously developing this sensory capacity just to feel where joy is that where Mm -hmm. silly is that where all that is that is also really just balancing and resourcing when particularly either just as a hyper empath or working in the field of care, mm. just kind of finding that regulator of I'm um, also really sensitive to joy as well as really sensitive to responding to hurt. So I think that's one of the things that I do. And then one of the, if I were to think of a third tip is where am I turning something like love? Similar to, I think, Bell Hook's sort of question in All About Love is how is love no longer a noun, but a verb? So how are we using language to shape or change that perception that love is not a static thing, that it's a force, Mm -hmm. that it's loving, that it's in an animated dynamic. And so with responsive body, one of our little catchphrases that we use is uh, love like gravity, that love is not a feeling, but a genuine actual dynamic force that Mm -hmm. holds your feet to the ground that allows for you to do anything you want, anything you want on this planet and beyond. And it's still there. That's the loving. So I think, where could we be doing the work, our own genuine work to be bringing the verb action drive to the loving as a dynamic force for transformative change? Yeah, for connection for health for wellness Mm, that was awesome (laughs) easily one of my favorite conversations you know on this podcast so ali thank you so so much you're you're definitely a light and i want to you know make sure that our audience members you know understand that no matter where they are in the world or where they are in life that you know, we are love and, you know, we are 
you know, the manifestation of it. And I think it's in a way our duty to be able to express it in, Mm. you know, so many different ways that resonates with them. And what resonates um, the most with what you said before was being able to minimize this nonsensical, you know, acts of violence and hatred and anger and just unprocessed trauma, essentially. It's it's essentially unprocessed trauma, our misunderstanding, misinterpretation of what has happened, you know, um, in our individual lives, you know, mm-hmm. most people won't be able to, you know, see and understand from the outside looking in. But most importantly is, you know, do you see and understand what happened, mm-hmm. you know, and finding the tools, you know, to be able to process that. And I'm so glad that you've created responsive body as a tool, as a system to process that. So I thank you very, very much, you know, for the conversation, for what you do. Oh, thank you so much. It's so good to be with you. Also really just want to thank you for being in the world and doing what you do. It's such a huge (laughs) contribution. Yeah. I feel so much alignment. I just feel so joyed inside that within the medical field that somebody such as yourself is out there. Yeah. Opening up the invitation um, to be with all of these options, mm-hmm. like liberating more and more options for what it means to be healthy and the support that you can receive, yeah, in that pursuit. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I, I I appreciate that. So, guys, thank you so much for watching another episode of Thrive Bites Podcast. If you like this, please like, subscribe, and share. And if you feel like this was a benefit for someone else, please let them know. And until then, please say goodbye to Holly. <laughs> Hey guys, we hope you enjoy that episode. If you like that, please like, comment, and subscribe. And uh, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And if you felt that this was a benefit for someone else, please let them know. And also remember that the first five seasons, 150 episodes, now can be seen and heard on our new The Chef Doc app. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating and we greatly appreciate it. So, and we'll see you on the next one.